Hello, Shirley fans. For the last three years, Jason and I have been bringing you the stories behind all of your favorite movies from the 80s, but today we begin a new series. In 2016, the Duffer Brothers introduced the world to Stranger Things. This show not only changed the way we all watch television, but surprisingly also truly impacted the music we listen to. From Africa to Running Up That Hill, Stranger Things has brought back songs of our past and introduced them to a whole new generation. So, the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast begins a new series bringing you the stories behind the songs of Stranger Things. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am James D. Graves. I'm here with my good buddy Jason Colvin and we are here to talk some Stranger Things music. Episode 3 of Season 1. I've got one question for you, D. Yeah? Is that a new bra? (laughs) That was last episode. Oh, sorry. That was the last episode. Hey, it jumps in right where we left off last episode with Steve and Nancy. And Barb. And Barb. Poor Barb. Yeah. Man, these shows, I love going back to revisit these episodes in preparation for these things. This is such a well-made show. It is. And I know we're here to talk about the songs, but man, the production is so good. I feel like we need to talk about it a little bit. Basically, Barb is stuck in the Upside Down. Yes. She was on the diving board at the party, having a crappy time, dropping blood in the water. Yeah. All of a sudden, boom, she's in the Upside Down while Steve and Nancy are making out. Yep. Eleven down in the basement. Mike's taking care of her. Yeah. Pumping snacks to her, taking care of her. And their buddy Will is still lost. Everybody's looking for Will. And in this episode, we discover through flashbacks that Eleven has more powers than we really knew about. Right. Two, that she is not willing to kill cats, but is willing to kill orderlies who are trying to throw her in the closet. They deserved it. And that she's punished for not killing the cats so that we know that there's something fishy going on here. I can't not talk about this, right? I realize that we're here to talk about the song, but I just have to say this. So the sheriff goes to investigate at the research facility, and he's very suspect. Like, he's like, can you show us the video of the night the kid disappeared? And when they leave, he's like, did you see any rain in that video? No rain. we called yeah. it off for the storm, right? So they start investigating at the library. He's had a little, little thing with the librarian. That was kind of funny. <laughs> And and when they're doing their research, it comes across this page where Dr. Brenner, played by Matthew Modine, mm-hmm. he shows up as implicated in some nefarious stuff, including, and this is the first first article that he sees, the MK Ultra experiments. I did some looking on this. This is a real thing. I am sure that a lot of our Shirley fans know about this, but this I, this was my first... I didn't know about it. This was my first to dive into this stuff. It is crazy. I mean, this is... I mean, literally, like, we talked about LSD in our first episode. In 1953, when Korean prisoners of war came back to the United States and were like toting the Communist Party line. They were like, holy cow, these guys have been brainwashed. And so what they decided to do was make their own brainwashing investigation. And with these completely front organizations that appeared to be educational or treatment-oriented or whatever, they would give people LSD and other mescaline, other drugs, other weird sort of experimentations on them. I mean, freaking, it was like Nazi war camp crap. All through the CIA for like 20 years. And they spent $20 million on it. It's insane. My mind was blown. <laughs> My mind was blown. When you called me and said, hey, this, do you know about this? all this stuff? I was like, whoa. Holy smokes. Like yeah. it's Manchurian Candidate style stuff. It is Manchurian. It, except yeah. real life, right? Right. And they gave one of their own guys. They gave like a, a U.S. weapons 
biochemist LSD without him knowing about it, and he jumped out of a freaking window a week later. Like, dead. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't do it. Don't take drugs from the CIA, boys and girls. <laughs> hey, I've got another mind-blowing thing for you. Yeah. Something we talked about during our Top Gun episode. Yes, okay. Matthew Modine, the guy who plays Dr. Brenner. Yes. Who played Loudon Swain in Vision Quest. Yes. Which I showed my daughter. She was like, no way, that guy is old and he's playing a young guy. And, you know, well, <laughs> he wasn't was always old, yes. That was a long time ago. Matthew Modine was the second choice to play Maverick in Top Gun. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Tom Cruise got it, but their backup plan was Matthew Modine. I don't know if I'll find a way to throw this in later, so I'll throw it in now. We're going to talk about David Bowie, and by gosh, 80s, he started acting in addition to his other mm-hmm. endeavors, and he was in a movie called The Hunger, directed yes. by... Tony Scott, director of Top Gun. Yes, that's true. Terrible movie, by the way. <laughs> Horrible. It's not well received. It, it's a vampire movie, so I'm like, awesome. I'm like, ready for like Fright Night or Lost Boys? Yeah. Boring. My gosh. Boring. Yeah, yeah. To finish up the episode, Elle yeah. is taking the boys to find him, and we cannot forget that Joyce has the lights up and is convinced that That's Will true. is communicating with her through the lights, and then we see some you know, more pushing through the paper stuff. Thankfully, it's Christmas time, and she's able to go out and buy a whole lot of lights, and then we have the discovery of what appears to be Will's body at the end of this episode. Sorry, spoiler alert. Sorry for not telling you earlier. <laughs> Hey, I do want to give a quick shout out to my good buddy, Tristan Martin, who deserves some credit, and I haven't given him any credit yet. I, my kids actually were the, the final straw in making me sit down and actually watch Stranger Things. So I'm late to the party. I joined at season four, but I went back and started at season one, got caught up. But Tristan Martin's been begging me for years to watch this, and uh, he was like, what about me? What about when I was begging you to watch it? So Tristan, thank you. You are one of the major reasons why I watch the show as well. So, fantastic! It's show. been a great show. It's so well done. And I mentioned last last episode that that was the ET episode. Like it was very yes. similar to the ET stuff. This one was totally uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. Right. Everybody thinks Joyce is losing it. She thinks she's communicating with Will from beyond through lights. I mean, she's obviously nutso. Just turns out she's Richard Dreyfus, and she's right. Mm-hmm. It did mean something. You're exactly right. This means something. I love watching these with my kids because I see like the the thing that's kind of bending through the walls. I'm like, that's Nightmare on Elm Street right there. Yep. It's like me commentating to my kids. They don't want to hear it, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is from Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> All right, D. So it's football season. So Tom Brady's 45 years old. He's out there getting it done. Yeah. He's basically our age. Yeah. And you know one of the secrets for his success in the NFL? Every time he goes out onto the field, before he goes out on the field, he feels his balls. (laughs) He squeezes them. He caresses them. He was actually involved in a scandal (laughs) revolving around the pressure of his balls. Well, if your balls are under pressure, maybe it's because you got too much jungle going on down there. (laughs) Which brings us to our sponsor for the day, Manscaped.com. That's right. Let's talk serious for just a second. Okay. Series 20 for Series 20. Let's talk serious 20, right. Okay. Your wife, your girlfriend, they want you to be clean and trim and looking good. Yeah. They don't want a nasty jungle. Right. Manscaped has these great products like the lawnmower that's there to, to make you look good. Right. Guys, if you go to the barber every couple of weeks and you take care of all other hair on your body every year or so... You're doing it wrong. That's right. Nobody wants to be with a caveman. Right. 
Take care of yourself. Go to manscaped.com. Be sure and use our promo code, which is Sirius20, and you'll get 20% off of your order. And they have fantastic products for you to use. I like the kits where you can get like a whole bunch of stuff all in one package. Don't be a caveman. Whack it. Whack it. Okay, are we ready to dive into the music? Let's dive into the music. We've been blathering on for long enough now. Okay, D, so we're diving in right off the bat, 40 seconds into this episode. 40 seconds. 40 seconds. We basically jump right in with Steve and Nancy who are under the sheets. Well, speaking of jump, like I had, to, I was listening for the song because I knew <laughs> it came right on. You're sitting me watching me listen for the song. And it turns out the first thing that you hear in the episode is Barb go, <laughs> I jumped clean out of my seat and you died laughing. Yeah, that was funny. But yes, about 40 seconds after that, we uh, see Steve and Nancy getting down, getting with it. Things about to happen. He's checking out her new, her new bra. Her new bra. And then the bra's gone and all sorts of stuff's happening. But you dive right in with one of the 80s great power ballads, a song called Waiting for a Girl Like You by Foreigner. This is the perfect song to have in this spot because it's not only a huge song of the 80s, huge right. song of the 80s, it is a power ballad that when you mix a romantic scene in with a terrifying scene, it takes all of those cool synthesizers that they're doing and makes them much more eerie. It is a juxtaposition, if you will, of beauty and horror back and back. Let's talk about that song for just a second, then we'll talk about Foreigner for a second. Okay. So the song reached number two. Two. And only number two. Yep. It actually has the distinct honor of being number two for ten weeks. Ten weeks. That's like some kind of record. It is a record, actually. Yeah. It is the longest that any song has been at number two and not made it and to number one. And never made it to number one. Yep. I think, who did I tell you the, the other one was? Uh, Missy, Missy Elliott. Elliott. Yeah. Yes. So Foreigner releases this song October of 1981. By January of 1982, it reaches number two. But it's blocked for nine weeks by a song called Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Well, I like to listen to Olivia Newton-John's Body Talk. <laughs> <laughs> that song was 80s iconic. You said nine weeks, though, and this was on the chart for ten weeks. Well, what happened? then you have a song by Hall & Oates called I Can't Go For That. Two icons of the 80s keeping another icon of the 80s out of the number one spot. So it leapfrogged it, went to number one, blocked it again, and then that last week, Jay Giles' band, Centerfold, takes the number <laughs> one spot and Foreigner drops to number three. It just missed its window. And this song comes off of their fourth album, appropriately titled Four. Right. It would have been a good comparison for us on Toto's Four, which is what we did whenever we had our first episode and we talked about Africa. That's right. But we still have it out there to compare to somebody else. I'm not sure who that is yet. 
but it is an iconic album. And I asked my brother, I'm like, how did how did this get by me? You know, like, hey, older brother that introduced me to sure. all of the 80s bands. Did you ever own the four tape or anything? He was like, no, I always wanted it, but it was like something else always came up that I picked it over that one. Uh-huh. So before we get into four itself, let's talk about how they how the band came to be, all right? Sure. Okay, so Mick Jones is the man. Like, he is the founder of the band. Right. So throwback to him, he he was a guy who started playing music very early. Got a ukulele. Yeah. And loved it and played it all the time and decided to become a guitarist. The first band that he got involved with was a band called Nero and the Gladiators. I know. Flashback to our Gladiator episode. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> so he plays with them. And the, their gimmick was Nero was in a toga and the Gladiators were in Gladiator gear up on stage, right? Right. He ends up as a session musician in France. He wrote songs for Johnny Holiday, who mm-hmm. is considered the Elvis of France, right? <laughs> I saw that. I'm like, the freaking French Elvis? Right, the French Elvis. And there's a song, I want to butcher the pronunciation here. We need Melissa Mingle over here to help us pronounce this, but A Tot Cassier, I'm guessing, is the name of the song. Hey, wee oui, wee. Oui. Yeah. You know who played guitar? No. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page played guitar on the French Elvis's <laughs> song written by Mick Jones. Hey, wait, now the French El- we got the French Elvis. Yeah. And remember when we talked about the Minneapolis Wham? Yeah. <laughs> it was our one hit wonder, right? So you that, guys, yes. hey guys, if you want to check out our one hit wonder episodes, be sure and go to our Patreon page, <laughs> patreon.com backslash Shirley Podcast, and you can hear all about the the Minneapolis Wham. That's right. That's right. We talked about that on the Jets episode. So he's doing pretty well. He's making money as a musician. He ends up making friends with the Beatles. He ends up in this band called Spooky Tooth that does okay for a while. So Lou Gramatico gives him this LP from Black Sheep, Lou Gramatico's band, and Mick Jones's band is in New York at the time. Right. So just a quick thing on Spooky Tooth. Spooky Tooth, yeah. The original singer for Spooky Tooth was a guy named Gary Wright. If you've seen Wayne's World, you've heard this guy sing. Gary Wright sings... Dream Weaver. Okay, so here you go. I've got some stuff on Black Sheep. Right. Black Sheep was a band in the early 70s. Uh-huh. They were actually the first band signed by Chrysalis. Yeah, I was going to tell you this. You're going to tell me this? Yes, Okay. So if you'll remember, we talked about Chrysalis a lot during the Huey Lewis and the News episode. Yep. Right? Huey Lewis made the album Sports, but Chrysalis was kind of falling on bad times. They were calling and no one was answering the phone. In New York and in London. (laughs) And they were not going to turn their album over to a company going out of business. Right. They would sleep with the originals (laughs) underneath their pillow. Flashback to our Huey Lewis and the News Sports episode. Black Sheep is acquiring some success. They actually become the opening band for Kiss. And in the 70s, man, that's a huge deal. Absolutely. So they have this, they're traveling and they have this accident where their equipment truck crashes and destroys all their equipment. Yes. This is the New York State thoroughfare covered in ice. All of their band equipment is destroyed. And band equipment is expensive. It is. It is very expensive. And Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are like, sorry, fellas. Sucks to be you. Good luck. (laughs) See you later. 
So, Mick Jones, also at this around this same time, his band is falling apart as well. Falls apart there while he's in New York, and he's got no money, so he's stuck in New York. Oh, wow. So he's working as the session musician and producer a little bit in New York, but he's got all these songs that are coming into his head, and mm-hmm. he's like, man... Maybe I just should start my own band. Instead of just being the guitarist for somebody else's band, I'll start my own band. So he gets together with Ian McDonald, who is from King Crimson, and they decide to form a band together. Form the band Trigger, right? Yes. And so they're picking other guys up, Al Greenwood, some other folks to be a part of the band, but they still haven't found a singer. And suddenly he remembers this guy, Lou Gramatico, that had given him this Black Sheep LP, and he's like, hey, let's give that guy a call. Well, when Black Sheep's equipment truck wrecked and all of their equipment broke, he had to find another job. You know what Lou Gramatico was doing when he got a call from Mick Jones? No. He was a janitor for a public service building. He was cleaning toilets and mopping floors. You know, we talked about in our journey episode when Steve Perry got the call, he had gone home and was working at his stepdad's turkey ranch. (laughs) Whenever, he was done with music. He was done with music. Whenever Brian Johnson got the call for ACDC, he was putting car windshields in, yes. right? He was working as a mechanic, basically, occasionally singing at a club here and there and, you know, doing a Hoover, a Hoover vacuum commercial every <laughs> once in a while. Now, Lou Gramatico gets this call. They fly him up to New York within the first two lines of him singing. They're like, this is our guy. But Lou Gramatico doesn't sound as cool as another name, and so he changes his name to... Lou Graham. Lou Graham. And the band has to change their name from Trigger to Foreigner, and they start working on their first album. So their first album is an incredible success. And it's funny because I heard Al Greenwood talking about this. He's like, I was so excited. We were listening to these songs. We're blown away at how good they were. <laughs> so when the album finally gets done, I take it. I have it at my party. I play it for all of my friends. And we it gets done. And they're like, that was terrible. <laughs> like, number one, get new friends. Get new friends. <laughs> I mean, what? Right. And number two, how wrong could they be? They were so wrong. And not only were they rude, they were out of touch with what good music was because that first album blew up. Which is great, except this was a studio band. Like, Mick Jones had put this together and his whole purpose was to do a record not to go out and tour but when this album does as well as it does they have to go tour to support the album well the problem is they've never played live on stage before (laughs) so it took a little bit for them to get up to steam but after a while they perfected their stage act and they hit another couple of albums mick jones kind of seemed to be a task master a bit of a hard ass if you will he's a turd yeah yeah and he ends up firing the bass player because he feels like he's not gelling well. I mean, we're talking about a band where they're having all kinds of success. He fainted. The bass player fainted, but they keep going. And their third album didn't do as well, and so they decided to slim down the band from a sextet to a foursome. They got rid of Ian McDonald, who was one of the originators. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about classics here. Okay. So the first three albums, listen to this. Feels like the first time. Cold as Ice, Hot-Blooded, Double Vision, Dirty White Boy, 
Head Games, those first three albums, I mean, you're talking about rock and roll royalty right there. Monster hits. They were breaking records with how well their songs were doing. Their first eight singles cracked Billboard Top 20. Nobody had done that since the Beatles. That's right. So in 1981, they go to record their fourth album, which they call Four. Creative. You know who their producer is? I do. And I also know how they got their original record deal. They signed with Atlantic. Do you remember who the A&R guy for Atlantic is? It's a guy we talked about in our Whitesnake episode and a guy that we talked about in our Aerosmith episode. John Kolodner. John Kolodner. If you don't know who he is, go back and check those episodes out. But just to throw you a picture in the Dude Looks Like a Lady video, he's the guy dressed up in the wedding dress with his ZZ Top beard, right? <laughs> with the beard, yeah. He is, he is the one of the most successful A&R guys of all time, and he recognized Foreigner for a possibility to be a record-breaking band, and he was absolutely right. And so, yes, by the time we get to four, they're like, who do we get to produce this? We are looking for some singles. We are looking for something that's going to be chart-topping hits. Who do we get? Well, who, of course, do you get? You call Mutt Langer. Mutt Lang, baby. Mutt Lang, the guy who did Back in Black, who did, ultimately he did Pyromania, but he did High and Dry with Def Leppard. The guy is a hit maker, and he's great at polishing stuff, making it radio-friendly, making it hits. Yeah, and boy, did he knock it out of the park with this album. Man! So I think it's interesting, the, the difference in philosophy between Lou Graham and Mick Jones. Yeah. Okay? And actually, Mick Jones goes on to produce an album where the same philosophy is rearing its ugly head in the mid-80s, okay? You wouldn't be happy to talk about the first Van Hagar album, would you? Yes, I am! <laughs> My favorite one! 5150. Mick Jones actually is one of the producers for 5150. Guys, if you haven't checked out our Van Halen versus Van Hagar episode, please go check that out. It's one of our best three episode series. It was so fun to do and there's so much story and all of that stuff. But yeah, 5150. I mean, Eddie Van Halen's like, hey guys, I want to bring synthesizers into this rock band and make radio friendly hits. Yeah. Mick Jones is like, I think that's a great idea. I can go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now what's interesting about this song, number one, it was a change for him, right? Yes. And it was a change that some of the band was behind and some of the band wasn't. A little bit later on, it was 85, they come out with another song that is a power ballad, synthesizer heavy song that is their only number one hit. Beautiful song, but the song that broke the band. Waiting for a Girl Like You, as you mentioned, power ballad, I mean, one of the biggest songs of the 80s. How do you argue with that success? Well, Lou Graham argued with it, right? He's like, we're a rock band, you know? Right. And so in 1985, Mick Jones calls up Lou Graham and says, Hey man, I've got the bones to a song that I'm working on and I think it's great. Why don't you come on over? So Lou Graham lives about 15 minutes away. He drives over. They pound it out. They work on it. They hammer it out. And the song is called, I Want to Know What Love Is. Dude, 
dude, it touches you in a way. I mean, you did say what you will about what this did to the band, but man, that song is moving. It's epic. And yeah. it was a global smash, right? Yeah. So here's the tough thing about that song. So when Lou Graham and Mick Jones sit down and they write the song together, you build it, you polish it, you massage it, you work on it, you arrange it, you compose it, you do all these things to it. And at the end of the day, when you're done with it, you have to decide what percentage did you do, what percentage did I do. It has to do with money and royalties and all this other stuff. It's big business, right? All right. So Lou Graham said there was lots and lots and lots of times where it was 50% him, 50% me. That's just how it went. And usually if there was a, a discrepancy, they'd kind of meet in the middle and they'd call it good. So after they had done this, when they sat down at the table, Lou Graham wrote down his number. Mick Jones wrote down his. Okay? Yeah, they were, they were saying what they thought their percentage contribution yeah, was. Yeah, you write down what you think what we both did. I'll write down what I think we both did. So Lou Graham wrote down 65, 35. 65 Mick Jones, 35 Lou Graham. Okay, And Mick Jones wrote down 95 Mick Jones, 5% Lou Graham. And that was super, super insulting to Lou Graham. Yeah. And he's like, you're basically saying that I did almost nothing on this song. Right. He's like, man, I gave my heart and soul. He's like, this, all this is is greed. So, in fact, why don't you just keep it all? And so, Big Jones said, fine, I will. And he did. Wow. And he got all the royalties for that song. And it was a massive, massive song. Massive, massive song. And... Ultimately, Lou Graham was like, I'm not interested in being the lead singer for Foreigner anymore. Screw you. You and your greed. You can have all the royalties. I'm out of here. Yeah. I want to drop just a couple of nuggets on Lou Graham before we move on. Okay. So in 1987, he comes out with a song called Midnight Blue. See the that song, to me, is just... An epic radio-friendly hit. I love it. It's great. Also in 1987, he gives a song to the Lost Boys soundtrack. Uh Flashback to our Lost Boys versus Fright Night episode. That song is called Lost in the Shadows. And it really sets the tone. It's a great song. Oh, it is a great song. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Now then, I've got to put the end on the story of Lou Graham. This is incredible. You ready for this? Sure. So in 1991, he realizes, man, I've got a drug problem. So he goes right from a show at New York City's Madison Square Garden. His friend finds a place in Minnesota. So he goes and he spends 30 days there. And he says it's the greatest 30 days of his life. And it gets him clean, gets him off drugs. And he really grows spiritually. So he becomes a born-again Christian in the mid-90s. And I thought this was really interesting. He actually sang... For the the Christian rock band Petra, which any good Christian boy in the early 80s (laughs) listened to Petra for a little bit, right? So he sings with Petra. But in 1997, he starts to have these headaches. Headaches so bad, they actually, he said they crossed his eyes. Like he couldn't uncross his eyes. And this is the day before they have this tour with Japan. He's back with Foreigner now. Right, yeah. And he goes in, they do a a scan on his brain, and they find a non-cancerous tumor the size of a large egg, and it has tentacles wrapped around his pituitary gland and his optic nerve. Oh, my gosh. He talks to a friend who recommends a surgeon who is, like, the best in the world at brain tumors. Yeah. So he goes and he sees this guy, and the guy says, it's inoperable. Get your affairs in order. Wow. You're, You're on your way out. 
Wow. So he goes home, obviously distraught, and he just happens to turn on the TV and he's watching 2020 and he sees a, a special where there's a surgeon who uses lasers to remove brain tumors that are previously thought to be inoperable. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't be laughing. This is really, I'm just imagining that the doctor's name is Dr. Evil and he uses a laser. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I know Lou Graham lives, so I can laugh at this point, right? That's right. That's but right. a terrifying moment for him at, at that stage. I mean, can you imagine you're at your house, you're thinking, I've got an inoperable brain tumor, mm-hmm. I'm going to die, yeah. and I am happen to see this TV show that mentions this. Two days later, he was in a surgery for 18 hours, they carved it out, and he is alive and well today. Yeah. In fact, he said he believes that God supernaturally caused him to be in front of the television at that exact moment so that he would see that, so that his life would be spared. He said, now then, because of all that, the song, I Want to Know What Love Is, it has special meaning, oh. spiritual meaning. Nice. There you go. That's good. Okay, so switch back to the song for just a second, D. Okay. You have that 15-second ambient music at the very beginning. Uh-huh. That strong, strong keyboard. Yeah. You know who plays that keyboard? I do. Tell us who plays that keyboard. It's Thomas Dolby. (laughs) She blinded me with science. Thomas Dolby was 19 years old. Fresh off the turnip truck. Yes. He was recording some music and kind of playing with some stuff. And he knew that Mutt Lang recorded at this particular studio. And so he rented some time there in the hopes that he would bump into Mutt Lang. And sure enough, he did. And because of that, he ended up playing on the Foreigner record. And because of that, he ended up getting his own record. And it gave us the one-hit wonder, She Blinded Me With Science. You uh, you mentioned to me that like when he came in, that Mutt Lang liked his stuff. And so he said, you should sing backup. What a great way to get a friendship developed. You, you know what? Your voice is great. You should sing backup on this song for what me. What a great idea. He also, by the way, played keyboards on one of our one-hit wonders the first one-hit wonder video killed the radio star yep and he also played keyboards on Def Leppard's Pyromania there you go how about that science the Mutt Lang connection there it is okay so one more thing before we leave Foreigner okay he was married to Ann Dexter Jones who was a socialite but she was the mother of three relatively famous children one of them is Mark Ronson. That name any mean anything to you? Yes. Mark Ronson did a Bruno's Mars song. Uh, Uptown Funk? That's it. You got it. <laughs> Uptown Funk. <laughs> nice. No way. I felt like we were on Jeopardy there for a second. I will uh, Uptown it. Funk? <laughs> <laughs> you name got it. every Bruno Mars song that you possibly can. Uptown Funk. <laughs> so the best Bruno Mars song was produced by the stepson of Mick Jones. How about that? DJed for him. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. By the way, Mick Jones also executive producer on the Billy Joel album Stormfront, which had We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, nice. Good one. All right. Are we done with Foreigner? Yeah. I think it is time to move on to our next song in the episode. Okay. Next song in this episode comes in at 1622. Joyce has realized that the lights mean something. 
Okay. It really means something. Right. And so she's gotten out all of her Christmas lights. She's put them all up everywhere to give a little tracers for Will to communicate with her from wherever he is, because at this point, we don't know. And then she runs out of Christmas lights and decides, time to go back to her old job at the general store and pick up some new ones. And when she walks in, what's playing over the PA? Well, it's Christmas time, so it's a song called We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Okay, so this is a traditional song. This one was arranged by Joel Lervold and was performed, according to the records that I have here, was performed by the Joel Evans Quartet. Now, I will say this. I went and tried to pull that up, and when I listened to it, it is an instrumental. There's no singing. When I watched the episode, it's a woman singing. There's no question it's a woman singing. Right. So I don't know where the disconnect is, but there's something unusual going on there. But not many people are unfamiliar with the song, both the music and the words. But you got something to tell me about this song? I've got a little bit on this one. Help me out. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about I've it. got some sort of bland background, <laughs> and then I've got a punch-you-in-the-face nugget that I can't wait to tell okay, you Okay, well, we don't do bland, so just get, get, get by that. <laughs> move, move past the bland, All right. right? Well, here's the deal. Okay, so... We Wish You a Merry Christmas is of unknown origin. Okay. But it dates back to at least the 16th century. Okay. Okay. And it was sung as a Christmas carol by children going door to door. They would knock on your door. Uh huh. When you open the door, they would sing this to you. Yes. In the hopes that you would give them a sweet treat. Like figgy pudding? Like figgy pudding. Okay. And when you think this sounds a little bit odd. Uh-huh. Think about what we're going to do on October the 31st this year. Right. You know? Yeah. It's the Christmas version of Halloween. Yeah. Now then. Caroling for Twix bars. <laughs> So this guy named Arthur Worrell it actually kind of gets credit for popularizing it again in 1935, okay? This guy was a conductor and an organist for the University of Bristol. He had a performance and where this song became popular again. Okay. 1935. All right. But now then, this is in England. This becomes popular in the United States because Bing Crosby records a version of this on his 1963 album, I wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, get this. Yes. This is the bomb I'm ready to drop on you. Uh, okay. Edge of my seat. Okay. So he recorded it for his 1963 album. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, before I get to that nugget, I got to tell you one more thing. Okay. In 1979, John Denver <laughs> sang this with the Muppets. Yeah. Right? And it's a hilarious version. Okay. Because they sing the uh, Bring Us Some Figgy Pudding. Uh-huh. And Miss Piggy is like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? They're like, figgy pudding, not piggy pudding. Now bring us a figgy pudding. Now figgy pudding. pudding. No, figgy pudding. Made with figs. Oh, sorry. And bacon. What? We wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh, my God. Anyway, it's really cute. Yeah. But in 1977... Bing Crosby had a Christmas special that was broadcast on national television. Okay. He did a duet yeah. with David Bowie. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. Now wait yes. for this. Uh-huh. So they sang together. They sang a duet. They sang The Little Drummer Boy. Uh-huh. And it was Peace on Earth. It was a mashup. Right. Okay. So you got the young star. You got the old guy. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now, they released this Christmas special a month after Bing Crosby died. 
Okay. Okay. Wow. All so right. So they recorded it. But during this Christmas special, they broadcast a video of David Bowie's of a song okay. called Heroes. Get the heck out of town. Look at that. Wow. How about that? Wow. And if, dear listener, if you are not having your mind blown right now at what Jason has just said, it's because you don't know what's coming up. Stay tuned to find out why that's a big deal. Yeah. Wow. Boom. Good job. Thank you. Good job. Nice one. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're done with that one. Okay. Next song on the episode is very subtle. You might overlook it because it is that diegetic music that comes out from the scene. You actually see the source in this particular one. Little Elle is wandering around the house. She wanders up to Nancy's room, is fascinated by all of her stuff, and there's this pretty little music box like all of the girls in the 80s had, and she opens it up, and there's a little ballerina dancing, and the song that is playing is Brahms' Lullaby. Lullaby and good night The Sandman is calling Sail away to Blanket Bay And return at break of day So, our original Patreon member and longtime friend and sometime collaborator, James Buckley, noted after listening to our first episode, there will be more mentions of John Peel and there will be more mentions of suicide as these episodes go on. Woo! I bet you weren't expecting it for Brahms. No. Here we go. I don't know. I have no idea what you're about to say. Okay, so Johannes Brahms is considered one of the three Bs. Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. That's how I knew who he was when I was a little kid. We had a music book at our piano that was the three Bs, and it had songs from all of those guys in it. His dad was a musician. He taught little Johannes how to play music, and he got good enough that he hired some good music teachers. His music teachers actually said he could really be a phenomenal player if he would just stop with the composing all the time and focus more on playing. How's that for a bad recommendation, (laughs) right? So he gets another music teacher who is encouraging to him a little bit more in his composition, but eventually he becomes a teenager, starts to kind of rebel a little bit. There's rumors that he started playing in brothels. Well, but that's where the action is. Just imagine this, right? Just imagine this, right? This is this is the 1800s, right? But I can I could just see this like this is the rock bands that we're talking about. He's out there playing clubs, and he meets this Hungarian guy who's like a phenomenal. He's like the one of the best violinists around, but he's just like, hey man, let's go tour together. And that's what they do. They go tour together. Brahms and this Hungarian named Eddie Remini okay. go on a tour together. Okay. And they're touring Germany, right? All over the place. Going to all these... Sold out dates. Yes. You got t-shirts and everything. <laughs> yeah. Groupies. <laughs> groupies all over. Okay. Okay, keep going. This is great. Okay, so I say all this. His musical taste, he was a very structured guy, but then when he rebelled a little bit, he started investigating new types of music, and this Hungarian guy inspired him to write songs later on. Has changed his style of music a little bit, and one of the songs that... One of the sets of songs that he wrote are called the Hungarian Dances. Okay. So he composes all these songs called the Hungarian Dances, right? But I'm going to play this for you. This is Hungarian Dance number five. I think you're going to recognize it. (laughs) Absolutely. Mainly because of Bugs Bunny. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my gosh, yes, of course. How many of us Gen X folks had our classical musical education come from Looney Tunes? Absolutely, right here. Yes. Boom. Exactly. In fact, I'm going to throw in this nugget yeah. while you're dropping all this wonderful history on us. Yes. In the Looney Tunes episode, Back Alley Uproar, not uproar, uproar, like opera. I got it. Sylvester is out on the fence post singing, keeping Elmer Fudd awake. Yes. And uh, Elmer Fudd's finally had enough, and Sylvester starts to sing the lullaby song to Elmer Fudd. Go to sleep, stop it. Go to sleep. Close your big bloodshot eyes. Now, now you stop that. La, la, la. I've even got a nugget for you on that, my friend. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. So when we very first started talking about the, the songs in this one, and, I, and you were like, Brahms Lullaby, what is that one? I don't know that one. I'm like, da 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 I'm like, go to sleep, go to sleep. Oh, you know it. Yes, so we all know it from those go to sleep, go to sleep, close your big bloodshed eyes, right? Yes. Okay. So back to Brahms and his world tour, or, you know, Germany tour, or whatever. Right. He's touring, and he meets... Franz Liszt. Franz Liszt! Franz Liszt, who also has Hungarian Rhapsody, right? Which we all know from the Bugs Bunny, the piano thing. You want me to play it for you? Yes. Okay, I'll play it. Absolutely, you got to. Okay, here we go. (laughs) He's chasing the mouse around the... You got it! Yes! You got it. Chasing the mouse around the piano keyboard... So, he meets Franz Liszt. Now, Franz Liszt takes one of, like just met, takes one of Brahms' musical pieces, plays it perfectly from sight, like has never heard it or seen it before, plays it perfectly. Like, amazing talent, Franz Liszt. A little bit later, that day, when he's in his concert and he's playing his own stuff, Franz Liszt's own stuff, Brahms falls asleep. And so, Eddie says, I'm breaking up the band. Oh, wow. I'm out. Uh Uh-huh. By the way, just got to throw this in. The Hungarian dances that we listened to just a second ago, uh, that's in Pigs in a Polka, another one of the Looney Tunes things. Yes. A little porky pig looking guys. It's kind of the three little pigs yes. thing. Yep. Cartoon education, right? Um, absolutely. Okay. So just after this, he meets another Hungarian violinist, but this guy is arguably the greatest violinist of the century, right? His name is Joseph Jakim. Now, while he was touring with Eddie, he was like, I really want to meet Robert Schumann. So he, I mean, just, you can imagine this, this is Jerry Cantrell and Axl Rose. He sends Robert Schumann his music, right? Sends him an envelope of his music. It comes back to him unopened. No, thank you. Well, after meeting Joseph Jakim, Jakim's like, I know Robert. I'll, I'll give you a letter of introduction. He gives him a letter. He shows up to Robert Schumann's door, unannounced, uninvited, just shows up. And he's like, who are you? What do you want? He shows him a letter by Jakim. And he's like, okay, come in. And he's like, I just, if you just let me play for you some of my pieces, I, if, indulge me for just a second. He starts to play and Robert's like, stop, 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 stop. Clara, get in here. Robert Schumann's wife is one of the greatest pianists of the century as well. He himself is this fantastic composer, which is why Brahms wanted to meet him. And so 
He's like, this is incredible. Listen to what this kid can do. And so little 20-year-old Brahms starts playing the piano again, and both Clara and Robert Schumann are blown away at how good he is. And so they start working together, they start collaborating together, and they start writing some hits. Hits? Hits. Okay. Four months later, Robert Schumann tries to kill himself. What? He has some sort of mental disorder that people, you know, doctors looking back in history, they say it was probably bipolar mixed with mercury poisoning. <laughs> you know. I hate it when that happens. But, I mean, he's he's been a successful composer. He meets this new kid. They start doing great things together. And then four months later, he's trying to commit suicide. Crazy. Wow. Crazy enough that he commits himself to an asylum. Oh, my gosh. So Brahms is left with Clara and Schumann's eight children. Yeah. And he kind of is like, I'll take care of you guys. And he kind of acts as the runs business, the things that men have to do back in the 1800s. And she was she was on, on her game, right? I mean, she helped support the family even when Robert was there with her piano playing because she was so good. But Clara and Johannes Brahms form this very deep platonical maybe at the time it had to be that way but i think he had stronger feelings for her than she had for him but she was married i mean that's right. it's the right way to be right but they don't indulge but they're living together her husband is in an asylum he is taking care of things and they have this very deep and meaningful relationship that is platonic so what happens then is two years later robert schumann dies of pneumonia in the asylum they say okay we'll go on a holiday together We'll see how things go. And ultimately, it doesn't work out. She just says, I will always love my husband. I can't love any other man. And they don't end up getting together. Okay. And not too long after that, he's like, I can't stay here anymore. I need to leave. And she says, after she leaves the train station, after dropping him off, she says, it feels like I'm leaving a funeral. Like it was that much of a devastation. So she obviously cared deeply for him as well. But I think they legitimately remained platonical acquaintances with very strong feelings for each other. And they remained friends for the remainder of their lives. And neither one of them got married. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So they actually made a movie about this. Okay. It was called Song of Love. Catherine Hepburn played Clara. Oh, wow. And just to give you an idea, Clara was on the 100 Deutschmark. Like her picture was, that's how big she was. Whoa. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, some lady who plays piano at the local saloon. She was big time. She was on the, the 100 Deutschmark from like 1989 until the Euro took over in 2002. Wow. She's big time. That is big time. And so that brings us to the song, Brahms Lullaby. Well, it didn't, he didn't call it Brahms Lullaby. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Right. The name of the song is Wiegenlied, which uh-huh. I believe is how the Germans would pronounce it, right? Not Wagenlied? <laughs> not, not Wagenlied, no. <laughs> which does mean lullaby or cradle song. This is Opus 49, number four. It was first published in 1868. It is one of his most popular pieces. Yes. You mentioned Back Alley Opera, right? Yes, yes. That came out in 1948. That involved Sylvester the Cat singing at and to Elmer Fudd. Right. Turns out that in 1945, there was another cat singing the song, and that cat was Tom from Tom and Jerry. 
All right. That is the first time that we hear, go to sleep, go to sleep, close your big bloodshot eyes. And then he has another verse. You're a dope and you're a lug and I hope you don't wake up. And he, at this point, pours knockout drops into Spike the dog's nose because that's who he's trying to get to go to sleep. Yes. 1945, the name of the episode is Quiet Please to one real animated cartoon and is the 22nd Tom and Jerry short and it won the 1945 Academy Award for Best Short Subject Cartoons, making it the third consecutive win for the Tom and Jerry series and it was produced by Fred Quimby. Now, three years later, 1948, that's when Sylvester is singing to Elmer and that one was directed by Frizz Freeling who did so many others, but also in that cartoon is The Hungarian Rhapsody by Franz Liszt. <laughs> yes. It all comes back. Yes. I love Looney Tunes and I love Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Brahms Lullaby. Man, blow me away. Music box. I did not know any of that yeah. when we started. There we go. Okay. It's so fun. we're moving on to the last song in the episode. Yeah. It comes in at 46 minutes and 57 seconds. That song is called Heroes by Peter Gabriel. I... I wish I could swim Like dolphins Like dolphins can swim Okay, so this song was composed and performed originally not by Peter Gabriel. Right. Before I get there, let's talk about David Bowie. Yes. Okay, without going into the whole history, he ultimately develops this persona of... Ziggy Stardust. Right. And he has this label that he is associated with that he's really the one that's making all the money for the label, right? He's in partnership with the guy who's his manager. And so he keeps touring. He keeps being Ziggy Stardust. There's all kinds of money being made. The only problem is it seems like all of the employees of the company have like these big spending accounts and they've got offices in different parts of the country. And David Bowie is like, why am I broke? Right. I'm doing all the work. I'm making all the money. You guys are even supporting other acts on the money that I've made. How is this happening? He finds out that he is not a partner in the company. He is an employee of the company. So he's been making a paycheck. Like he's got no profit share from the stuff that he's been involved in. And so at this point, he drops the persona of Ziggy Stardust. He sues his manager to try to get something back off of all of this. And he completely changes the way that he is making music. Oh, by the way, he's also severely addicted to cocaine at this point. Whoa. Like, there are articles about his paranoia and belief in UFOs and all of these other things that are going on. And I saw an interview where he, like, they're doing the interview in the backseat of the car, like they did in the 70s, you know? Right. And suddenly there's a siren going, and I mean, he's, he's like, completely stands straight up. He's like, are we going to pull over? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's they for found me. real, right? I don't know how, but they found me. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And so he decides to ch- completely change the music that he's making. And he moves out to L.A. And he meets one of the Beatles. Again, the Beatles come up. Yes. Mr. John Lennon. Okay. Who can identify with the troubles that come along with fame. And so they develop a friendship. David Bowie goes to Philadelphia during one of his tours and gets involved with these soul musicians. Changes his music in the middle of the tour. He has some backup singers come in, one of whom is Luther Vandross. Luther Vandross? Right. A unknown at that point. And then he ultimately goes back to New York and John Lennon 
lives in New York, shows up at the studio, and they write a song together. And they write a song called Fame. You mentioned in our first episode that Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Oak, Old Oak Tree was the number one song in May of 1973, which yes. is when you were born. Right. The song that was number one in October of 75, when I was born, was Fame by David Bowie. That's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Way so, to go. He does that. He ultimately wins the lawsuit or settles somehow with the company, gets right. a lump sum, but he's still really addicted to drugs, but he's still trying to change his style of music. And he hooks up with this guy from Roxy Music named Brian Eno. Now, we talked a little bit about Brian Eno on our U2 episode. Those amazing organs that you hear at the beginning yeah. of the Joshua Tree album, that's Brian Eno. Yes. Also at this point, as he's touring and Iggy Pop shows up at his door and he's like, Iggy, you look like crap. Yeah. He's like, I'm not doing well. He's bad addicted to drugs. He's not had a successful music career. And he said, David Bowie says, come on tour with me. So Iggy Pop starts touring on stage, singing with David Bowie on stage. And then David Bowie produces Iggy's next album, which is called The Idiot. It brings Iggy Pop back. Uh-huh. And then David Bowie does this album with Brian Eno called Low. And it is totally different than anything he's done before. And the record company is like, there's no single on this album. This is, and then he's like, I know, I don't want there to be a single. I'm not trying to be a pop musician. I'm trying to make music that I like. Uh-huh. The album still is in the top 10, but there's no singles coming off of it. And they, so the record company's like, okay, well, you at least have to tour to support this album. And he goes, no, I don't. And so what does he do? He tours with Iggy Pop and plays keyboards for Iggy Pop <laughs> while he's doing his tour for The Idiot. Wow. The next album that comes out after that is the is also with Brian Eno. And that brings us to the song that we're here to talk about today. The song and the album are both called Heroes. Ooh, so awesome. Good job. You're dropping bombs, man. So David Bowie's tired of being famous. Huh? Right? Yeah. He's tired of the fame, tired of the, all the trouble, so he moves to Berlin. Oh, yeah. Right? I saw him talk about this. He was like, he, they were in a chateau. That He and Iggy were trying to record in a chateau in France, but somehow they made some sort of scheduling mistake, and they were left without a domestic staff or food. So no butler, no maid, no cook, and no food. <laughs> So they're like, man, we're really messed up. Oh, we're starving. How about we go to Berlin and try to clean ourselves up off of the drugs? Berlin at this time is the heroin capital of Europe, but they decided that was the place to go to clean up. So they're in Berlin. So David Bowie rents a cheap apartment above a auto repair place. And he's just there to hole up and write songs and hang out and not be famous. The studio that he starts to record these songs at is 500 yards away from the Berlin Wall. Okay? So the first song that he's working on, Brian Enow says, you know what? I just really like the word heroes. This little piece that you've got going right here, it just sounds grand and heroic. And so I think maybe we could work the title heroes or the words heroes into it. Oh, we can be heroes just for one day. So David Bowie's like, okay, let me work on the lyrics. He said, everybody just get out of the studio and leave me alone. And that included producer Tony Visconti, okay? 
Okay. So Tony Visconti is the producer of this album, uh-huh. and he says, "Everybody, leave. Just leave me alone. Let me stay in here and work on the lyrics." And so, as he's thinking and brainstorming, he looks out the window and he sees Tony Visconti, who's married at the time. He's sneaking away with this woman named Antonia Moss, who is a backup singer on David Bowie's album. Uh-huh. And David Bowie's looking out, and he's like, "Huh? Hey, there's Tony and Antonia." Hey, they're kissing. Oh. And he's looking and it's like, there's they're two forbidden fruit lovers mm-hmm. stealing a moment. Yeah. And David Bowie's like, I could just really tell that he was in love with her. And so this idea of forbidden love by the Berlin Wall uh-huh. just really inspired him. And so he wrote this song about two lovers, one on one side of the wall and one on the other side of the wall, and they can't ever be together. And it's just this forbidden love. And that gave birth to this song. Heroes. Love it. Pretty cool. Now then, this is the thing that blows me away, okay? This song about this heroic love, whatever. David Bowie played this song in 1985 at Live Aid at Wembley Arena. We've talked about Live Aid many times. Yeah. Okay? So, massive thing. But he played it in 1987 in Berlin, okay? This is still before the wall came down. This is 10 years after he wrote it. Yeah. But they actually were up against the wall. Basically, the wall was the backdrop for the stage. Okay. And he got word that if we play it loud enough, that people in East Berlin could hear this. Yeah. And he, so he's like, well, let's do it, you know? This this is awesome. He didn't know how much or how loud or, you know, what would, what would be going on over there. But he said, as he's playing this song, he starts to hear people cheer and sing from the other side of the wall. He said it was basically one big concert divided by the wall. And he said it's the most emotional performance he's ever had. He can't even talk about it without getting choked up. And just the idea that Berliners, where he wrote the song about those people and about that divide, so it's just an amazing experience. Oh my goodness. Wow. How emotional. That's incredible. Pretty cool? Yeah. Fantastic. Now then, Peter Gabriel yeah. redoes this in 2010. Right. So this song from late 70s. Yes. We're hearing it, but we're not hearing the David Bowie version. We are hearing the Peter Gabriel version. That's right. So both versions are amazing. Yes, they all are. both very different. Totally different. Hey, I can remember Standing Standing by the wall Like there's much more going on orchestra-wise with Peter Gabriel's version. So how did we get here? How do we get to Peter Gabriel covering David Bowie? Okay, so this is a really cool story. Okay. So in 2010, he comes out with an album called Scratch My Back. Okay. All right? And it's a album full of covers. Oh, okay. And he just goes through and he does a cover of this artist and this artist and this artist All right. with the idea that they will in turn cover one of his songs. Okay. On an album that they would in turn call And I'll Scratch Yours. Okay. Right? Yeah. So this is pretty cool. So just to mention a couple, Randy Newman, who you may know from the song I Love L.A. Sure. He does the song Big Time. Yeah. Lou Reed does Salisbury Hill. Brian Eno actually does a song called Mother of Violence. Okay. David Bowie, however, declined to cover one of Peter Gabriel's songs, which is kind of not cool, but but I thought this was interesting. So about that difference, it's totally different. Peter Gabriel's version is completely different. This was his quote. I thought this was great. If you're going to reinterpret something, then really do something. Nail your colors to the mast and say, this is different, and it isn't everyone's cup of tea. 
Yeah. When I drove up here, I listened to both of these. I'm like, man, this song is awesome. And then I turned around. And I'm like, well, this song is awesome, but yeah. they're absolutely different. Yep. But here's the kicker. You ready for this? Yeah. This is my my bomb for you. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. So one of these days, Dee, you and I are going to have to cover the album So by Peter Gabriel. Absolutely. I'm a huge album in 1986. Huge. Okay. It has Sledgehammer. It has Big Time. It has In Your Eyes. It also has a song on there called Don't Give Up. which is a duet. The other singer in that duet is Kate Bush. Get the heck out of town. Who has maybe the biggest song in the entire Stranger Things universe, Running Up That Hill. Wow, that's wow. How about that? Yeah, I mean, if this goes well, we'll we'll get to her eventually. I know, right? It's gonna be. <laughs> It'd be a while. <laughs> about forty more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's awesome, buddy. Great, great all job. Right. Thank you. So that's it. So that's all for this episode. Be sure and go check us out on Facebook. Be sure to go check us out on Twitter. Be sure and check out our YouTube page if you're not there right now. And if you are there right now go check us out on our podcast app. And be sure, if you want to become an executive producer of one of our episodes, go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. And you can be an executive producer and you get access to all of our secret episodes where we cover one-hit wonders of the 80s and just some extra things that we decide, hey, we're going to give a gift back to the Patreons. Absolutely. We've got some great episodes over on our Patreon page. For as little as five bucks a month, you get all these awesome extra episodes. In fact, during our Simple Minds episode, we actually talked a little bit about David Bowie. So there's a lot of crossover. You definitely want to check that out on Patreon. Yep. And if you're on Facebook and you want to win a pair of socks and not spend any money, actually one, two, three, four, five, six pairs of socks, all devoted to Stranger Things, be sure and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel and leave a comment down below that you want some socks and then whatever other favorite part of the episode you had. As for everybody else, thank you guys for coming back or visiting us for the first time. We look forward to talking to you again next week. And next week... So, next week, be sure to come back for a super special song. We will see you guys next week for Season 1, Episode 4 of Stranger Things. <laughs>